Jerusalem. This is General Ike building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Rabbi Dr. Ron Cronish. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Cronish is an author, lecturer, consultant, and founding director of the Interreligious Coordinating Council in Israel, the ICCI. His latest book is The Other Peace Process, Interreligious Dialogue, A View from Jerusalem. Hello, Rabbi. Hi, nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You created the Interreligious Coordinating Council in Israel back in 1991. Mm. What was your intention at the time, and what has it grown into since then? So in 1991, uh, a group of us got together, about 25 people at the first meeting. January 16, 1991, it, we met in a church in the center of Jerusalem called the Radisbon Seminary, uh, the night before the first Gulf War. With gas masks in hand, uh, we came together to form a a council, which was meant to be a coalition of organizations, all of whom had uh, on their agenda, in some way or other, understanding and learning to live with the other in Israeli society. So it was Jewish institutions, Christian institutions, Muslim institutions of all kinds, educational, religious, cultural. Uh, and our goal was to uh, see how we could live together in peaceful relations. And over the years, we our meth, major method was uh, interreligious dialogue. So we did that for a lot of years, until three years ago we uh, closed up shop and moved, merged with another organization, and now it's unfortunately not functioning. But at, at the height of the organization, we had 70 members, institutions from all over Israel, uh, who were active in the kinds of things we were doing. And you were very front and center in a lot of the dialogue that was taking place. Oh, I was uh, the first chairman and after you the first uh, director uh, for, I guess, all of the years. So we had a board, we had other people involved. So yes, I was front and center, but I wasn't alone. There were, there were other people who uh, worked with me. And over the years, we had staff of different sizes. And uh, we worked... Uh, with religious leaders, with youth, with young adults, with uh, educators, uh, women's groups, uh, all kinds of people in Israeli civil society who were interested in entering into interreligious and intercultural dialogue, one with the other in most cases for the first time. You mentioned uh, starting the organization a day before the first Gulf War. Mm. I, I, that, that to me underlines how uh, suddenly hot this sort of region can get when you go into uh, a room to sit down with someone who may have a completely different worldview to you, how do you go about making the first steps towards building bridges? So, uh, over the years we developed a kind of method of, uh, of dialogue. Um, and one of the things that uh, we found important to do uh, was to recruit people for the dialogue process. So we didn't just put up a sign on a building board, we're having a dialogue group next week at six o'clock on Thursday and come around. We uh, went looking for different people for different activities. So if it was religious leaders, we went looking for rabbis and kadis and imams and ministers. So we recruited a lot by word of mouth, by phone calls, and then in most of the cases, we would interview people. And uh, during the interview process, we would, uh, uh, try to explain to them what we mean by dialogue. Dialogue by us meant listening deeply to the other and not just giving speeches and uh, telling why well, your side has all the truth. Uh, dialogue meant uh, hearing a lot of things you don't agree with and don't like. Uh, it had a lot of ups and downs. Dialogue uh, could be uh, emotional, not just intellectual. So we interviewed people and often people would either drop out or we would encourage them to drop out. So if you were a monologuer, 
and you like giving monologues, you go somewhere else. Or if you only like listening to lectures and it's the only form of learning you like, you go to the university and go to some lectures. But if you want to enter dialogue, you have to be prepared to listen and to respect other people's views and so forth. Um, then we uh, often would uh, uh, take another step, depending on the, the audience, uh, youth, young adults. Uh, we would uh, often have what they call in Hebrew, so not even a, a workshop, uh, to further weed out people, uh, people who, who, who couldn't behave well in a group setting or who just weren't ready for this process. Uh, uh, so by the time we got to the dialogue, we had formed a group that wanted to be there and that we wanted them to be there. Uh, that, that really helped in most of the cases. Uh, so interviewing, recruiting, uh, carefully uh, and, and doing workshops helped, uh, uh, helped uh, us uh, ensure uh, good participants in the dialogue. The other thing we did, we believed in, uh, 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 I would call it professionally facilitated dialogue. Not just an informal conversation, but we would hire people to be the group facilitator. And, and usually that was people who either had training or got training in how to lead a group discussion. Um, and how to facilitate the discussion so that everybody can be involved and, and so that if it got out of hand it would come back to order and so forth. So uh, uh, we found that good facilitation uh, was the key to, to a good process and over time we actually developed a methodology where we would have in many of our groups two facilitators, a Jew and a Palestinian, Arab, Israeli Jew and Palestinian Arab, the Palestinian Arab could have been Israeli also, but two uh, facilitators who were both present and a translator, so that if you were in the group and you spoke Hebrew only or Arabic only, you could speak your own language and communicate and be translated. And it also slowed down the dialogue process because you had to wait for the translation, which actually increased the listening. Uh, uh, so those are some of the things we did to to, you know, uh, uh, make the dialogue work. The other thing I could add uh, you know, is that we, we developed a method, I would call it, moving from the, the simpler to the more complex, or what we have in common to what we, what difference. So we would speak a lot in the beginning about personal identity um, and things that were relatively easy to talk about. Uh, we didn't start with why we hate each other, right. or, or uh, this last hundred years of the conflict, who started and whose fault it is. And we didn't discuss history and politics and those kinds of things at the beginning, but we came to them later. So we did a lot of things uh, along the way, and our dialogues usually lasted a year or, or sometimes two or three or even five. Um, we did a lot of things that would build confidence, build trust, and create an ambiance where people felt comfortable talking and if, and as we went on talking about difficult issues as well so when you say good facilitation is key yeah what does good facilitation look like what does it sound like so good facilitation uh, uh, is done by people who uh, talk very little and it's like a good conductor of an orchestra who get uh, people to participate, uh, and there are various techniques of good facilitation, uh, asking clarifying questions, you know, you said something but we didn't quite understand what you say, would you please clarify, or would you want to ask someone a question? A lot of questioning and a lot of bringing people into the conversation. Uh, it's really uh, the art of creating a, a guided conversation, so that it just doesn't go all over the map. And it doesn't, when I say create an ambience, it means uh, we didn't allow yelling and screaming, like right. in the parliament <laughs> or in the street. So the yelling and screaming was out. So the facilitator would usually speak in a relatively quiet voice and to, to model you know, what we call empathetic listening by the way he or she would speak. Um, so there are lots of techniques that 
good group facilitators have, but it's the opposite of lecturing. And it's not uh, even a Q&A. You know, I'm the learned professor. I give a lecture and you ask me a couple of questions. No. I, the facilitator, I don't have all the answers. I don't have any answers necessarily, but I want you to find the answers. So it's a, a little bit... Uh, some of our best facilitators were actually good psychologists. Good psychologists? Yeah. Yeah, it's a... There's a little element of group therapy in it in a certain way. You know, getting people to listen and care and deeply. And so, yeah. When you talk about these time frames, like it, between a year and five years. For yeah, people would commit a few hours a, a, a week or, yeah, and there would be weekly meetings of three, four hours. There would be retreats. There would be uh, trips abroad on very occasions to countries of conflict, all kinds of things that... People who went through this process committed to a lot of time. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a Sunday morning, bagels and locks, and then and we sing Kumbaya and we all love one another. Let's go. <laughs> and once people committed to the time, they tended to stick it out? That's a good point. Yes, we found that over the years, that most people who began finished, even during periods of terrible violence. Our center was right down the street on Emmerichafayim Street. And during the Second Intifada, this was the place of a lot of uh, suicide bombs and all kinds of stuff going on. And there were many times when I would speak to our facilitators and I would say, I guess we're going to have to cancel this program now in the middle of the year. They said, no, nobody wants to quit. So people were, once they had formed some relationships and once they were, felt that they were able to talk to to someone who may have been considered the enemy, you know, <laughs> at the beginning of the process, and once they felt comfortable, they were they were very interested in 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 having this face to face encounter. Uh, and, and I would say, often as we went on, uh, you asked me what's good dialogue. I remember near the end of the process, we sent a group of young people to Northern Ireland. These were young adults who had been active with us for several years already in various programs. And they were part of an alumni council we had. So we sent 16 of them to Northern Ireland, one year for a seminar, and we had two of our young people leading it. And I asked them when they got back, what, how was it? And one of the uh, facilities said, it was good. I said, what was good? It was good because it was really difficult. <laughs> so people defined a good dialogue was when we talk about difficult subjects including issues of the conflict in a in an honest and open way. Right. Yeah. So when you're looking at the pacing for this sort of thing, yeah. you you talked about starting with simple things that we have in common. Yeah. How how long would it so, be tell uh, it's, it's hard to say exactly, but roughly uh, you if you had a year, let's say you had a group of university sure. students for a year. Okay. The first month or two might be about personal issues and get identity and getting to know one another and that kind of stuff. So we would start there. Then we would usually move to what I call religious issues. What's a Muslim? What's a Jew? What's a Christian? What do they think? And how do they live out their Judaism, Christianity, or Islam here in Jerusalem or in Israel? So learning a bit about each other's religions was kind of the next step. That wasn't so hard, even though there's a lot of ignorance and misconceptions and stereotypes about the other's religion, it still was was relatively easy because we would, for example, uh, introduce them to good religious leaders, rabbis and imams and, and Christians who were positive role models or take them to their churches, synagogues and mosques and that kind of thing. So uh, we would spend maybe another month or two on that. And then kind of towards the middle of the year, we would get into the third thing, which we call the discussion of core issues, which would be you're in this group and you now know that your partner in the dialogue is a decent human being and you know he's not a terrorist or an a soldier or an occupier or a gun as well. Uh, and uh, you, you, you discover that his or her version of religion isn't that bad. In fact, it's really not that different from yours in terms of the basic you know, concepts. Uh, so we can talk about that. Now can we talk about the, the, the real difficult issues, the, the political questions, the, the violence and the wars, and, and, and that would take longer. 
because that was uh, uh, more complex and people had to uh, find the words so as not to insult anybody because there was a, a care not to insult the other person, not to make them feel bad. Not to, uh, it was a different kind of conversation that's usually held around here. <laughs> so that would take longer. And then we would try it towards the end of the year to, to do something action-oriented. We would ask people to develop projects and sometimes they would do individual or group projects. And that would take maybe the last month or two or three, depending on... That's roughly it. So we moved from the individual to the religious to the core issues to taking some action. That was sort of the method we developed over time. When you talk about, right at the beginning, when you talk about identity yes. as being one of the things that got discussed yes. before religion. Right. What, is, what does that mean? What is identity without it religion? It means, first concept? of all, who are you as a person? What do you like to do? Uh, how do you describe yourself? Let's say if you're Palestinian, Arab, okay. Are you also Muslim or Christian? And if you're Muslim, are you religious Muslim, cultural or secular? You know, so it's how you describe yourself and the various components of your identity, of which usually the religious is one of them. Right. Uh, you know, what do you like to do uh, for fun? What is it? You know, with youth, for example, what what music do you listen to? Well, you know, all kinds of things. Just to sort of, you, you know, we used to call these things in youth move icebreakers. Get to know one another. Get to know people better. Uh, um, discussing issues of foods, uh, visiting each other's homes, having coffee. You know, all kinds of. Uh, what I would call lighter subjects to, before you get into the heavy stuff. So, you know, uh, uh, in, in this part of the world, let's, let's look at the Jewish side for a minute. There's a tendency to self-define as either, if you're Jewish, religious or secular, which, sure. as you may know, is a false dichotomy, but it doesn't matter. That's the tendency of it. So, someone will say, I'm secular, secular Jewish, well, Often Muslims never heard of secular Jewish. They don't get that. They, they think Jews are religious people. So then you have to explain yourself what a secular Jewish means. Well, I don't believe in God, but I observe Passover, Purim, Hanukkah, and everything else, and I keep kosher. Well, is that secular? Well, uh, secular. Well, secular is maybe more traditional. So all of these definitions, stereotypical definitions, get uh, sort of broken down and nuanced in in a conversation, uh, and these conversations, you know, get battered around. And then at a certain point you proceed, you, you move on from identity yeah, to we, religion. Right, we wanted to, we wanted to tackle, first of all, we, are, we were an interreligious organization, hmm. and it was my feeling that religions around here, in Israel, Palestine, are generally considered by most people as negative. Religions cause conflict. The Muslims are all fanatics, and they're all from ISIS and Hezbollah and Hamas. I'm exaggerating. Okay? And uh, that's what a lot of Jews believe. And then the, the Jews, oh, they're just a bunch of settlers and occupiers and crazy people, and they want to go up in the temple. So people have real bad stereotypes of religion from what they hear in their communities, or if they look at newspapers and televisions, Religions, particularly Judaism and Islam, have a very well-deserved bad reputation. <laughs> so we wanted to break through that because we believe that religions have played mostly in recent years a negative role in this concept. We wanted to switch it and see if how religious values, religious people, religious leaders could play a positive role. So um, in the discussions dealing with religion, uh, we would try to look into uh, what is Islam really, what is Judaism really, and we we developed a very radical idea as a yeshiva bacher. You'll like this one. We had an idea that instead of learning about Islam or Judaism from the internet, you might learn something about it by opening up some books. Books, books, books like Talmud, Bible, you know, Quran, with some teachers. That is quite radical. Radical idea. I told you it was a radical idea. And we did that uh, over and over again, and we were kind of amazed to discover, first of all, nobody had ever studied anything about, nobody had ever opened the other person's book. Right. The Jews don't sit around reading the Quran uh, regularly. <laughs> and 
the Muslims don't sit around reading the Bible regularly. They don't learn in their schools or anywhere else. So in most cases, it was the first time. And then, you know, we had an approach to it, which was we would start with, um, again, the, sort of the basics. What are some of the basic humanistic values you can find and the sources that help you find that in each religion? Uh, things having to do with ethics and love and justice that all these religions have. And people were shocked to discover yeah. that the other guy's religion had anything to do with ethics or justice when they thought, let's say, Jews in the case of Mount thought it's all about death and terror. Right. It was a complete shock. So, uh, you know, we did that uh, over and over and we came to the conclusion that if you study texts with good teachers and, you know, pick the right texts and so forth, you can get the idea that these religions don't have to be enemies. <laughs> that followers of these religions and leaders of religions could really have a lot in common and then maybe they can work together on things and so. So the, it, it served to diffuse a very uh, negative stereotype of particularly Judaism and Islam. We didn't focus that much on Christianity because they're the minority side around here. The Christians and the Jews made up about 50, 60 years ago so they're not fighting anymore. You're uh, referring to like Nostratata? Yeah, very good. Nostratata and all that. The Jews and Christians are in good shape now. They're not fighting. So, although a little bit that would come up too because most Jews don't know much about Christianity. Most Christians don't know much about Judaism either. But the focus was more on Islam and Judaism. And so we would discover that these, these religions don't have to be the source of the conflict. And they could be part of the solution, not just part of the problem. And that, that helped. That like that uh, like uh, broke us a major stumbling block, sure. uh, out there and uh, and allowed people to move forward. And Were there particular surahs or verses that would come up a lot in this? Oh yes, thing? sure, of course. So uh, Genesis, you know, every human being is created in the image of God. For sure, that's from the biblical side, the Jewish Christian side. Uh, there are these famous surahs about. Uh, uh, about uh, how, uh, according to the Quran, God created all kinds of nations on purpose and you should come to get to know the other. So, you know, it's selective choosing of verses, but these verses are there, and they, you know, and so uh, some of them would come up over and over again. And on the Jewish side, you know, treat the stranger fairly because you were strangers in the land of Egypt would come up uh, over and over again. And, you know, there were some that kind of became part of the common language, in, in a way. I would say that's true. Uh, and, and so that, that you know, uh, love your neighbors. Yeah, so there, there are a number of them that, yes, that, that, that people learned and, and kind of would quote later on. I was, I was in a, in a, on a panel discussion last week in, in Ranana with someone, a Muslim colleague who uh, worked with me together on, for several years, and, in the discussion period, he quoted me as teaching the thing once about from from Leviticus, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, and you shall love the stranger for you were strangers in Egypt. And he remembered my quoting that years ago, and so that's be part of become part of his vocabulary now, his religious or interreligious vocabulary. So yeah, so some of that goes on as well. Yes, I'm not sure you're aware or your listeners are how distorted notions of Judaism and, and Islam are deep in each other's society. Sure. They're, they're like, you know, uh, it has to do with the hundred years of conflict, but in the last 10, 15 years it's gotten worse and worse with the growth of radical Islam on the one hand and the growth of what I call radical Judaism on the other hand. So each side uh, has you don't start at, at, at sort of just uh, at zero right. ignorance. You're starting minus 10 or minus 100 in terms of the negative attitude. So what, it takes... What sort of perception does the average... I mean, I, again, this is a very yeah. broad question, but the yeah. average Jew of Islam or the average... Yeah, Muslim, well, the average Jew Judaism. of Islam here, and I think not only here, is that, you know, Islam is this religion of death. It's all the politicized... It's ISIS, Hezbollah, 
Hamas, Iran, it's all, they just want to kill it. Jihadism, it's the kind of stuff you hear over a Shavilo as this boogeyman, and, you know, it's, it's all this kind of scary stuff. Shavilo? Sharia, Sharia. Oh, Sharia. You know, it's Sharia law being, you know, cut off your hands and all kinds of odd things. So it's, it's, uh, it's really pretty bad. And, uh, uh, and Muslims here, Muslim Palestinians, I mean, I think, uh, generally speaking, we're making some gross sure. Zionism is original sin, came to steal our lands, and now we have a religious Zionism uh, stealing every hilltop uh, in, in West Bank and, and fighting with, with us over every inch and in the name of their view of religion, people with, with keep boats and so forth and so on. So that's their image. And they don't really know much except from what their image is. So you got to really go a long way to deal with it. And I, I'll tell you a story. Uh, one year, a few years ago, I had a... Uh, student intern, a Palestinian Muslim nice fellow from uh, the Hebron area. He spent five months interning with us. And one day he pulled me aside in the office and he said, uh, can you tell me something about Zionism? Is Zionism just racism and killing and oppression and occupation? Is that the whole story? Is that what it is? So I was like shocked. And I said, okay, let's, and we sat down for an hour. I used to teach this stuff years ago. And we share, I shared with him some of the history of Zionism, some of the ideas. And he said, after the hour, I said, I never heard any of this in my entire life. So, you know, it's, I was on a panel uh, in New York last year, uh, in September, with uh, my new book. And as a, a Muslim professor at a university in New York, she said, do you know, that in the Muslim world, even in New York, in America, the, the word Zionism, very negative word. Jews are okay, but Zionists, you know, that means occupation, stealing our lands and all that. So how do you explain it? So we explain. So there's a lot of stereotype and a lot of disinformation and a lot of misinformation, which is why it's not an hour project or a Sunday morning. Right. This is a project of, uh, you know, a year or, or a couple years. Did you find that when you moved through the identity and religious side and you started talking yeah. about the, the sort of nuts and bolts of yeah. the political issues, did you find that the dialogue groups tended to converge around certain ideas or ways of, of coming to conclusions, or was it very scattershot even in the later months? Um, you know... Uh, it's hard for me to say that. I, it, it, it varied what was year to year, what was going on, how much violence was going on, Intifada two, three wars and stuff. So it tended to vary. But I, I would say there was often a uh, uh, sort of uh, crisis point towards the end of the year in April, May. And it usually was Towards April, May, how I'll long? I'll tell you why. Well, the year would start in September. Okay. I go to June, let's say, so 10 months. So, before Israel Independence Day, hmm. when the subject of Israel Independence Day, Nakba would come up. Nakba, Nakba meaning know, catastrophe in Arabic. Catastrophe in Arabic, the loss of all their lands and villages. When that would come up, that would usually be a very hot discussion. A very uh, deep discussion, and a kind of, you would really see sort of the radical breakdown of the two two narratives. Not 100%, I guess, we're making... That was kind of difficult, and different groups kind of were able to uh, navigate that differently. Uh, the younger people had more of, more trouble. The older, more, a little more sophisticated, could do it better. But one thing that I would say came out of what I'll call this third phase, the, 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 the core issues phase, has to do with um, hearing what we call around here the double narrative. So if you would participate in any of our dialogue groups, you would hear a lot about the Palestinian narrative, the, the, the history from the Palestinian side and the history of the last hundred years from the Jewish side, the Zionist narrative. 
And uh, you could no longer say that there is no such thing as a Palestinian Arab. Or the Palestinians could say there is no Jewish Arab. Right. So you... Both of which are commonly held perspectives around here. Yeah. Well, usually one only knows one's own narrative and has never heard the other. They've heard maybe that there is one, but they never heard it. Uh, So you would now hear it, and often, very often, in various forms. So we call that sensitizing people to the fact that the other person or the other side has also a narrative. Um, The other thing that would come out of it, usually, is that um, if you had 14 people in a group, let's say half are Jewish and half are Palestinian, you know the old joke about the Jews, one Jew, ten opinions. Yeah. Well, it's the same on the other side. So you would have many different opinions on every subject. So you would then learn that the real truth is that there isn't one Palestinian Arab and the one Jewish Zionist Arab, but there are many, and each side quarrels about what they are, and you can't really tell the strength of one except at a given time in in history or a given time in the present. So. You would also learn what I call the multiple narratives and, and a diversity. Each side has diversity, and that was that would often be a good lesson because you know I I used to lecture a lot and still do lecture some, and people would say, "Well, what do the Jews think about X?" And I say, "Which Jews? What topic? I mean, we have opinions on almost everything, uh, and the same about Palestinians, uh, Muslims, or Christians." So we learned about diversity and people saw things very differently. The, the other, I think the other thing, if I, if I want to uh, look for some general lessons that would come out, one of the other problems around here is usually called victimization. Both sides of the conflict see themselves as the victim and have a trial, tr- hard trouble seeing any victimization on the other side. Right. Uh, and when discussing one's narrative there's often stories of a lot of pain and suffering that come up this one lost somebody in terror this one lost somebody in counter terror and and so so people get often the first time some sense of not only the other's human but the other side as individuals as a national group have, have, have had losses and have had setbacks and it's not only my side that suffers. And so there can, if it works well, and it would, there would be, that goes back to what I call the empathetic listening part, that so you could then, maybe for the first time in your life, empathize with the suffering of the other side. Okay, yeah, we won the war in 48, and, uh, but then there are all these refugees living in refugee camps. And, you know, so do we have some sympathy for that? Uh, and vice versa. So, so uh, dealing with the problem of uh, victimization as the only narrative, and only my side suffers and your side never suffers, we try to get help people get beyond that. And I think we usually did. Were the times, you, you mentioned how uh, around April, May, yeah. quite consistently, things would get a bit more heated. Yeah. Uh, but when, when you were having, uh, say, the Second Intifada, the dialogue continued. Did that change the tone of the dialogue? So, uh, at different periods of the Intifada and different periods of violence, the level of tone and the level of feeling, the amount of emotion as opposed to just rational discussion would go up. And there were times when in different groups we had to stop for a week or two, or in one case I remember there was a group of religious leaders who stopped for a month, because the two sides were just too angry at that moment, too full of blame on the other side for starting the latest round, whatever it was, that they needed to break. Uh, so there would be times when, when it got tense and so we'd have to calm down and take a breather. That, those were the times when I would say, to, we had a staff of people, I would say, to, is it over? Is it falling apart? And they would say, mm, I don't think so. Because enough people wanted to come back. So sometimes uh, we, we have... Uh, there's one young Palestinian fellow, a very uh, 
nice guy named Tarek, who's now in his, I guess he's mid-30s now. He was in several of our groups, and uh, he was in one group when he was much younger as a student, uh, when there was some crisis going on, some violence, and he left the group for like about a month. Group kept going, but he maintained a few of the friendships, and people would call him or email him and this and that. But after a month or six weeks, he came back. And he, it, he tells this story a lot himself now, that he came back and it became very important to him in his life that he was able to come back. Now he's working for a group called Kids for Peace in, in, in Jerusalem doing great peace work. So, so some of these people were very affected by, in their own personal lives by, by their participation in these kind of groups. Were there moments that felt genuinely scary? I don't think so. No. Uh, no. I, I, uh, scary, like, in like there could be physical violence? I don't think so. There were moments of high tension where people were, were, were on the verge of anger or were, were very upset by hearing some story told that was pretty hard to hear. But I don't think there was any, uh, any threat to anything. Physical. The one, one time, the closest thing I can think of, what we had a group of uh, of young people, and uh, they were all Jerusalemites, East and West Jerusalem, and they were supposed to take a field trip one day to uh, a Palestinian neighborhood in North Jerusalem called Beit Hanina. And something happened in the old city. There was some violence the day before, and we had to cancel it. And uh, when we Discussed it uh, myself and the uh, the the, uh, the staff who were running the program, a, a Palestinian and a Jewish a young man and woman. Uh, one person didn't understand why we canceled, and we said, "Well, we canceled because when there's a threat to violence on the street, we can't take responsibility." Uh, that's probably the closest we ever came. Yeah. There was no people. I I'd say that. People were able to, um, generally speaking, manage their anger and upsetness and keep it under control because they were so interested in hearing the others. I think that in some of the people with younger groups, in high school, there would be some emotional moments, you know, kids would cry and then the, 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 the staff would have to console them. Uh, but... I don't know of anything that led to any uh, anything more than, than verbal attacks, and I, I, I think that, I'll put it this way, people picked up on the non-violent communication thing and kind of like got with it. So I think one of the successes of this kind of work is that, I don't know how much you spent uh, listening to the radio in Israel this year or TV, we have a lot of verbal violence here. Right, sure. People are shouting and spitting anger all the time on the radio, on the TV, in the society, in the streets, in the cars. We didn't have that. We, we created a different kind of conversation, which I think, or, you know, the media is the message, that helps them. But, uh, on the converse, were there moments of genuine triumph when you felt, this is why we're doing this sort of work? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, I wrote, in my book, I wrote... I wrote I told a lot of anecdotes, like stories about some of those uh, experiences. Yes, there were several, probably many. Want me to give you an example of that? Please. Yeah. One of the most important projects I did, uh, over five years, we ran a program called Kedem, Kol Dati Mifayes. We called it, in, 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 it was an acronym for Voices of Religious Reconciliation. We recruited 14 Orthodox rabbis and 14 Muslims and Christians, religious leaders, local, all Israeli citizens, and we put them through this dialogue process that I described to you. And each year, for four years, I mean, we went to a, a, a foreign country where there had been a conflict and it had gotten resolved and now they were moving on. So first year was Northern Ireland, Belfast, second year was Sarajevo, third year was uh, Cyprus, and so forth. 
Um, and we had a fabulous facilitator there during some of those years who was a, a clinical psychologist who was really good at his work. So when we went to Belfast for the first time, this is after maybe two or three months of meeting here locally and breaking the ice and so forth. Uh, um, we had five days of very uh, intense dialogue. Uh, and then we were planning to go to uh, the south, uh, the Republic of Ireland, to Bel Dublin, where we were going to have a very cozy interfaith weekend, Friday morning in a mosque together, Friday night in a shul, Sunday in a, in a church. It was all set up. And the day before, we get a uh, fax to the hotel where we were staying that um, uh, down in Dublin, the people in the mosque were a little nervous about our coming, a bunch of rabbis from Israel. So uh, they asked if the rabbis could please come without head covering. So I said, oh, oh. Uh, and they said, otherwise they could be trouble. There could be trouble. In Ireland, troubles was, sure, that was the word for the, the violence. So we got a little nervous. So I brought this up to the man who was our facilitator. And he said, okay, we'll bring it up with the group. Discuss with the group over lunch, after lunch. So when they brought it up, uh, there was a discussion. And uh, the first rabbi says, I have a creative idea. We'll wear baseball caps. Maybe that won't bother them. Second rabbi gets up and he says, No, I'm coming with my kippah, or I'm not coming because I'm a proud Jew from Israel and I'm not giving in to threats. And as they're discussing this, a tall man, a Muslim guy who was a Qadi, a judge in Israel, he stood up and he said, that I uh, said to his friends, my brothers, the rabbis, this is his words, that uh, our working relationship together after these five, six days in dialogue, when we go home next week, is more important than us going to some mosque together that doesn't, it's going to set conditions on you and this and that. So we'll just cancel the visit. And the Muslims will go on their own and whatever. And that's what happened. And uh, that little act and kind of the way he said it that cemented relations for, for years to come. It was a, a gracious act. Yeah, very gracious. And, uh, and, and very sincere. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and the, uh, this guy turned out to be one of the, the Muslim leaders of the group. He was always very sincere, and he spoke with a very clear, moral, ethical, religious, moderate Muslim voice that the rabbis were kind of like, eating it up because it's the first time in the life that it hurts such a thing and you know they had grown up with such stereotypes of only uh, extremist rhetoric that they just wanted more and more and more so this group went on for five years which was quite amazing and you know it probably reached its end because you know groups can't go on forever and then there was a crisis five years later they, there were always crises of one kind or another most of them we ever came but then there was one we couldn't You've spoken in the past about the importance of uh, action rather than merely dialogue. Right. That's something that you feel very strongly about. Yeah, I do. It's true. Could you expand on this idea yeah, a bit? That's, uh, thank you. So, we believe that dialogue should lead to action. For us, the dialogue between Palestinians and Israelis, Jews and Arabs, Northern uh, Ireland and uh, the other people, people who are former enemies, is not just a personal therapy exercise. You go, you go feel better, and you go home and, you know, like you have good group therapy. No. The idea is that all of these people who were invited into a process like this, which was a heavy investment of money and time and personnel and everything, that we wanted to create multipliers, people who would go out to their communities and try to do something, even in small ways, to to change consciousness to, in their community, to, to educate, to, to, you know, give a different sermon than you would have given last year, mm. okay? 
so we had this theme, the dialogue should lead to action, and we tried to create often uh, projects, individual projects, group projects, and over time some worked and many didn't. And one of my uh, tough discoveries that I write about near the end of my book is that uh, going from the I'll call it the cozy bubble of dialogue into the real world, back to your communities, was very, very difficult because the communities weren't ready. They weren't where you were. Hmm. And we are missing a step of how to prepare your communities to take that step with you. So one case we had a, there was a rabbi and a Muslim guy, they were very good friends for five years and he invited the Muslims to come to his yeshiva Mm-hmm. And it totally backfired because the students hadn't been prepared and they asked him all kinds of uh, aggressive questions and they made him, made him feel terrible and they called him names and it, it totally backfired because we were missing that step, that community organization of how to prepare your students for a kind of compassionate listening exercise. You know, so. so the... Uh, the transition from dialogue to action was not simple. Some people were able to do well. We had one rabbi, fantastic guy, uh, who was an educator also. He, he taught, uh, he's from Yeshiva in Gush Etzion, actually, and he uh, taught teachers in a religious high school in Jerusalem. He had an idea that after his very positive experiences, he would teach a course for two years on, on uh, 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 relating to the other out of Judaism, and uh, uh, something contemporary about who are my Israeli Arab neighbors, mm-hmm. including meetings with Israeli Arab neighbors. So uh, he did this for two years. We had a grant to do it, and it was fabulous. And I remember, I think, going to the, uh, the conversation with the students at the end of uh, the first year. These were actually gifted young women. And uh, he was asking them questions, how, how, how was the course? Uh, for the year, and some of them said, this was the first time in my total Jewish education, these were religious Jewish girls, I had a good Jewish education, that I ever learned about these values in the Torah. Wow. That really knocked me over. And some of them said, this was the first time they'd met the enemy, who was an Israeli Arab, and was able to have a conversation with them. So I said, okay. So that was a good idea of what I call educational action. This guy... He was motivated, he was influenced, he wanted to spread it to others, so he, he did that for a couple of years. Uh, there were some other cases, uh, but not enough. Not enough. I had, I, had, I had hoped for more, and then I was a little disappointed. Did you find that, that after a while you could really tell the difference between action that was going to be productive and action that was almost certainly going to either be uh, useless or counterproductive? Well, yes, not exactly. You... you I would say it slightly different. I would say we could see that there were certain people who were willing to be a little braver and and and, and fight the trend in their community and, and and do something which which may go against the grain. And there were others who were afraid to rock the boat and and therefore didn't try because they didn't think they, they succeed. Is more the way I put it. And then there were some cases where people tried and got knocked down. I mean, we had a we had a program called Face to Face, Faith to Faith. It's a tongue twister. Face to Face, Face to Faith. It was young people, uh, teenagers, for eleven years. Uh, they met every year a different group, and they would go to a, a summer camp in upstate New York, and they would meet with kids from South Africa and Northern Ireland, parts of the U.S., and they'd spend two weeks together. And they'd have this great intensive experience of being together in this camp and learning about each other's narratives and everything. And then I would expect them to come home and be charged up and ready to go in their school and shake it up. It didn't happen very much. And one, one guy wanted to do it. And he goes to a Palestinian school here in Jerusalem. And he goes to the principal and he says, I want to invite my Jewish friend Avi to come to the class. And the principal says, no way. We're not doing it. Not, not now. The atmosphere isn't right. Hmm. So, it wasn't easy to do, and uh, one of the lessons for the future is uh, not just myself. Others who are in this field, I know, are thinking about how to how to 
do more training to help people who want to make this step into action uh, to make it more effective. It's a, it's a challenge, big challenge. Rabbi, what is your vision of a better Jerusalem? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I'll send you a piece that I wrote this morning from my Times of Israel blog about Jerusalem. Um, so Jerusalem's a big topic. And, you know, it's a very hot topic right now. Uh, so I'll give you, because time is short, my, my vision. Jerusalem, if we're going to have peace here, will need to be shared by Israelis and Palestinians. Shared will mean things like two capitals, symbolically, over there in East Jerusalem, next to the American Colony Hotel, they'll have a flag, and we'll have a flag over here. It won't change too much on the ground, but it will mean a new concept of uh, neither side gets the whole thing, just as neither side is going to have all of greater Israel or neither side is going to have all of greater Palestine. If we're going to have peace, we have to share the land, and if we're going to have peace in Jerusalem, we have to share Jerusalem. It doesn't look promising with the current government leadership, but you didn't ask me to talk about the government leadership right now, but I, you've asked my vision. My vision is that... Uh, Palestinians and, and Israelis will share Jerusalem politically. And then, with a peace agreement someday, there will be many more efforts at coexistence work and interreligious dialogue among different people in our fabulous city, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, who interact in ways that are not enough right now, but will have the freedom and the lack of fear and be able to interact. And this will be a thriving multicultural city. Amen. Rabbi Dr. Ron Kronish, thank you so much You're for welcome. coming out tonight. Pleasure. Nice talking to you. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.